you're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. We're going to use our Bibles this morning. I want you to open it to 2 Peter, which is almost all all the way in the back. And once you get there, put a piece of paper or the ribbon or your husband's finger there and then flip back to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in both those places. We'll start in Romans chapter 1 this morning. We are continuing our series entitled Nailing the Gospel. And the purpose of this series is that we get the proper theological precision wrapped around our understanding of the gospel. In this series, we're going to have to learn a little vocabulary. We started doing that a little bit last week when we defined this word justification, whereby God uh, rules that we are pardoned of our sin and Christ's righteousness belonging to us. We looked at that vocabulary word last week. And then uh, we understood that as we, uh, as we understand this this definition of the gospel, that we're also answering the question, what makes us Protestant? Like, what are the differences between Protestant and Catholic, and why aren't we Catholic? And what are the differences? Are the differences major or minor? So we're getting a perspective on that. And so we're also having to do some history to look back about 500 years ago at this moment where there was some clarity brought to the gospel. The gospel had been deformed and then We were informed by scripture, which brought reform in the church. And so that's what we're getting our head wrapped around this morning. This morning, we are going to learn that scripture is reliable, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient for everything I'm supposed to believe. It's all right here in God's word. Now, I realize that as we jump into this, there's a lot of skepticism in our culture that's wrapped around the Bible, you may be thinking, really, Trent, come on. It's the 21st century. Are you really asking us to open to an ancient document that's 2,000 years old? And it was written over the course of about 1,500 years, 40 different human authors speaking three different languages, writing on three different continents. You're really saying that everything I need is right there in the scripture. Well, I'm saying that because that's what God said about the Bible. And we kind of like to agree with God around here when it comes to the things that we agree. And so even though we're in the 21st century, there are people and we are the people that give ourselves to the scripture alone. This week I was on the campus of Cedarville University in Ohio. It's where my three uh, oldest children have gone to college. Two of them are currently there now. And uh, what I love about Cedarville, even though it's a liberal arts college, you can get a degree in engineering or nursing or Bible, but everybody at Cedarville gets a Bible minor. You get 12 hours of, of Old Testament, New Testament, and theology so that you understand what we have here in the scripture. And And uh, there was a picture that was taken in chapel at Cedarville a few days ago that really captured my attention. Here's the 4,000 students crammed together, meeting in chapel. Does anybody notice anything that just really stands out in this picture? What do you notice about that picture? You see these 18 to 22 year olds holding something. A paper edition of 
God's word, the Bible. Really, these millennials are holding a paper copy and, all, and they have a journal that goes with it. They all brought a pen because they all showed up expecting God to speak as his word was preached and read and they wanted to respond in faith. And if they can do it, so can we. I discombobulated you, some of you, about a month ago because we stopped putting in that blank sheet of paper in the bulletin and some of you haven't known what to do now. It's like, what do I do? Hey, here's an idea. Bring your own paper and bring a, a paper copy of God's word so you can mark it all up and, and draw the lines and write down what God says to you as his word is preached. As a matter of fact, we have provided for you over in the resource center, a little journal that you can uh, put your own little notes in here and, and you can keep these and over years and decades form a little catalog of things. And then when you're dead, your children will know what you believed about God's word. This is a gift. It's a cheap gift you can give to your grandchildren later on. So that's what we are a people of the book, okay? So we're, I told you to open the Bible. We always say that. So let's read here in Romans chapter one. I want to read to you the first verse of Romans one, the most important book in the Bible. And so we read, first of all, Paul, look, God used a human being to record his words, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, that was kind of the foundational church planting writers, human writers of scripture, first century, he was an apostle set apart for the gospel. There it is, we're gonna nail the gospel. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. You know what Paul is saying there? I'm not writing anything new. I, this has already been written about in the Old Testament. I'm just I'm bringing some clarity to some things. That, this, the gospel's all through the Bible, right? It's all the Bible. It's all gospel. So they were written beforehand through his prophets. So more human beings that recorded God's words in, notice, the Holy Scripture. Underline those words. Holy Scripture. There were some words that were recorded in human history that were not like other words. They were holy words. And what made them holy is not the human beings that recorded them. It was the holy God that spoke them. And they're identified as scripture. Scripture, it's an interesting word, right? We still kind of use a form of that word. Sometimes I get sick, I go to my doctor, and he gives me a prescription on a little pad that he writes. And I take it to the pharmacy and I get my prescription filled. So I went to the doctor and he gave me a description, you're sick. And then he gave me a prescription to get me well. Sometimes they just use shorthand. They just say, here's your script, right? So what do we have in God's word? We have a holy description of our sickness. Here's the description. You're not just sick, you're dead. That, that's how bad it is, right? It's terminal illness. And then he gives us a prescription to get well. 
to bring life into our hearts. And so that's what we have in the Holy Scripture. Now, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the Holy God that is revealed in the Bible. So we have to understand this. And we've been studying this this nailing the gospel, the, the Protestant Reformation was centered around these five solas. The word sola is Latin for alone. And so this is the way we say it. Scripture alone defines justification, that's what we looked at last week, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so we come to this book to find out what am I supposed to believe about God? And how am I supposed to behave in response to God? Scripture alone informs us about the answers to those questions. So we're going to look at it in three different points this morning. Here's the first. Scripture alone is a reliable record of the self-disclosure of God. Scripture alone is a reliable record of the self-disclosure of God. Flip over here, if you are there in Romans chapter 1, flip over to chapter 10. Just a few pages over, and I want you to look at verse 17. Again, Paul is writing, he's giving us the description of the gospel and what we're supposed to believe about it, and then he says this in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking this is pretty pro-God crowd. Sunday morning, you scraped yourself out of bed and came to church, you probably believe in God. But there's probably some skeptics among, among us, and there's a lot of skeptics that chose to stay home because they don't really believe. Maybe they believe there is a God, but he's so far away, and he's so much bigger than us, and for sure he's so much more holy than us. Theologians call that the transcendence of God. He's not like us, Okay. He's different. He's other. So the question would be asked, if there is a God, how can God be known? What we believe is the only hope we have of knowing anything about this holy, transcendent God is if God chooses to self-disclose something about himself. When it comes to God, you are left to two different options. You can either rely upon speculation. I wonder what God is like. and He's probably like this. and I think it might be like this. And that's human speculation. Speculation is man's attempt to get to know God through philosophy or religion or, or some wise guru that we might look to that's smarter than the rest of us. You, that's one option, speculation. Here's a better option, revelation. We believe God has spoken to his creation. This infinite God has spoken to finite man and he speaks our language. And as a matter of fact, not only do we have the written word of God revealed in our holy scripture, 
we have the living word of God. Not only did God speak, but God came to us. He left heaven. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become one of us. And Jesus was 100% man, but he was 100% God. And those are things that we can't resolve and can't wrap our finite minds around. But he never ceased to be God. And we don't have two gods. We don't have three gods. We have one God who has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not a man who became God. Jesus was God who became man without losing any of his godhood. And so he spoke to us about the things of God. And the only way we can know the will and the ways of God is that these things have been revealed to us. God has spoken. And every time God speaks, there is a required response of faith. And I either believe it or I don't. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Christ came to speak to us about the true nature of God and what God requires of us. Please understand, when we talk about what we believe and we contrast them, you know, as Protestants and here's Catholics and maybe here's Muslim and here's Mormon and here's Jehovah's Witness, when we talk about the distinctives of what we believe, please understand there is not a Protestant way to God and a Catholic way to God and a Muslim way to God and a Jehovah's Witness way to God and a philosophical way to God. There's only one way to God, God's way. And he loves us so much, he's spoken and said it's this way. And all you have to do is read about it. We, I left you the way. Here's the roadmap. And so you can choose to believe it or not believe it, but there's only one way. And it's God's self-disclosing of himself. I think sometimes those of us in the 21st century, we take for granted what we hold in our hands. I mean, we stick it on a shelf with all of our other books. and We got our Bible app right there among all the other Bible apps. It's right, right there next to Instagram. I mean, it's that important. I mean, I got my two of my favorite apps, Instagram and and. Bible, that one. Yeah, and if you use the new little timer, you could maybe figure out how much time you're spending on those two things. You might want to measure yourself, and that will tell you actually which one's more important to you. So we take for granted what has been delivered to us. We have no idea the price that was paid by sacrificial men and women so that we could have the Bible in our language and be taught to us by people that have actually given their lives to study it and explain it. Do you understand the price that was paid? About 500 years ago, around the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was a man that God used named William Tyndale. He was from England, and he was really impacted by the New Testament translation that was newly published by a man named Erasmus. The reason why that was significant is at that time, the only language the Bible had been translated into was the Latin Vulgate. And for a thousand years, 
the Roman Catholic Church required that it stay in the Latin. The only problem with that was nobody spoke Latin. Nobody read Latin. The common man had no access to the Word of God. And so William Tyndale got a passion to learn how to translate it from its original language, the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and translate it into the language of the people so they could read it for themselves. The only problem with that is that the Catholic Church considered it heresy to translate the Bible into English. And they made it punishable by being burned at the stake to be caught reading an English translation of the Bible. So William Tyndale packed up his journals and put away his pens, crawled up in the fetal position and cried. Is that what he did? No! He was so courageous at the risk of his life, he translated the Bible into the English for the very first time. He was confronted by some of the church officials, and this is what he famously said. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to, to know more scripture than you do. <laughs> Bring it on, right? And you know what? We applaud that. Do you know what happened to William Tyndale? Four years after he made that statement, he produced that English translation. He was caught, he was arrested, he was tried, they tied him to a stake, they strangled him, and then burned him in the public square. And as that fire was lit, he was famously heard crying out to the God this prayer. He said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Do you know the name of the king? King James. And if you think I just referred to a basketball player, you need to go back a little further in history. <laughs> a few years after that, God did open King James' eyes, and he authorized for the first time an English translation of the Bible published in 1611. Some of you may have even brought that to church this morning. I'm thankful for people that know the 21st century English language and helped us get it even into a more modern form. But we, we, we are indebted to men that paid a price to hold and treasure this word. Last week, I introduced you to the man named Martin Luther, who in 1517 nailed those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And uh, as he was doing that, he was protesting against the Catholic Church's teaching specifically related to something called the sale of indulgences. Okay, this was a doctrine, a teaching in the Catholic Church, and Martin Luther's reading his Bible, and he's like, you know, I've read this thing a few times, and I don't see anything about that in here. Where in the world do we get off creating some kind of doctrine we can't support in Scripture? And that's what the 95 theses were mainly about, was protesting that particular doctrine. You say, what were the indulgences? Well, here's the deal. Let's say you had... Um, 
you had a crazy Uncle Harry, and he wasn't a great guy, and so he died, and you're concerned about where his soul is. And the Catholic Church said, you know what, we got this little money box over here. If you'll come and put enough money in the box, then we'll credit some of that to Harry's account, and then you can pray for Harry, and maybe he'll make it into heaven. The sale of indulgences. So the more money you put in, the better chance Uncle Harry had of getting to heaven. A teaching that still is prominent in the Catholic Church. Well, Martin Luther was protesting this and like, that's not biblical. What does the Bible say about that? I don't find anything in here about that. Who made that up? And so for that reason, Martin Luther was called into account. And as the cardinals started to press in against him and challenged him, why aren't you recognizing the church's authority? This is what Martin Luther said. He said, the truth of scripture comes first. After that, it's acceptable, after that is acceptable, one may determine whether the words of men can be accepted as true. Now, listen, sola scriptura is not solo scripture. It's not only scripture. Obviously, I'm using words as I speak to you that are, I'm not just reciting scripture. There are tons of commentaries and books and teachers that are available to us, but the scripture comes first. And whatever we teach must be supported in the words of Holy Scripture. Martin Luther was attacked by a, a man named John Eck and asked him, why won't you acknowledge the church's authority? The church has the right to interpret God's word. And this is what Martin Luther said about that. He said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed over a pope or a council without the scripture. Amen, that's right. We can believe the Bible, we can obey, we can understand the Bible. Finally, the Pope issued a decree that required Martin Luther recant and retract his, his teachings and his writings that were, that were undermining the, the false doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. And he said, you've got 60 days to recant. And so they brought him before this great council one day in, in uh, 1521. It was an interesting place, an interesting council. The, the word council back in the day, they called it a diet. And this particular meeting took place in the city of Worms. In English, it's spelled W-O-R-M-S. We would pronounce it Worms. And so interestingly, Martin Luther showed up at the Diet of Worms to give a defense. And fortunately, somebody recorded it. They, they live-streamed it back in 1521, and, and it was recently discovered in the archives, and we have a copy of it here today. Actually, this, what I'm about to show you is a movie that was made back in 1950. It looks like it was made in 1521, but, but this is a great, great clip of what happened. Just put yourself in there. Don't get distracted by the crazy outfits and the bad acting, but just listen. <laughs> to the conviction in Martin Luther's words. Listen to this. Dr. Luther. Yesterday you admitted these writings were yours. Will you tell us now, do you persist in what you have written here? Or are you prepared to retract these writings and the beliefs they contain.
I ask pardon if I lack the manners that befit this court. I was not brought up in king's palaces, but in the seclusion of a cloister. I am asked to retract these writings, but they are of different kinds. In some I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. In others, I attack popery and assail men who have afflicted the Christian world and ruined the bodies and souls of other men. If I were to retract those, I should be like a cloak that covers evil. Most serene emperor, illustrious princes, noble lords, I am only a man and not God. But I must defend myself as did Jesus Christ when he said, as I say now, if I have spoken evil, bear witness against me. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Give us a simple answer. Will you recant or will you not? You ask for a simple answer. Here it is. Unless you can convince me by scripture and not by popes or councils who have often contradicted each other, unless I am so convinced that I am wrong, I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. That's the conviction of a man who believes that God wrote a book. Listen to his words. Unless I am convinced by scripture in plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant of anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Would that God would raise up people that had that kind of conviction in the 21st century to stand against everything that claims to be truth. We say we believe truth has one source, Scripture alone. Scripture alone is a reliable record of the self-disclosure of God. Secondly, Scripture alone has the authority to define what we believe about God. I want you to look over here in 2 Peter. I asked you to open to that earlier. 2 Peter chapter 1. Realize that we're reading the words of Peter, an apostle of Christ. He lived with Christ. He walked with Christ. He talked with Christ. He heard what Christ uh, said and he saw what Christ did. And this is what Peter said. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Isn't that what the culture tells us we believe? What we hold in our hands, that, that, that book, it's just, it's just a bunch of 
of cleverly devised myth. And don't you realize that it was, it was written by fallible men and men don't ever do anything perfect, so you can't say that this is perfect. What we believe is that a perfect God recorded his perfect word through fallible men. I believe he can do that. And Peter was one of those fallible men. One of the reasons that we know that the Bible is reliable is Peter himself didn't try to hide his flaws. If you were trying to make it up to try to convince somebody that it was true, would you put all the junky stuff about your life in there? And yet we mock Peter because he was so, so much of an idiot half the time, right? And he's, he, he recorded all that stuff about himself. And so it says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They actually saw the miracles. They actually heard his teaching. And he went on to say, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what you hear people say when you say, well, the Bible says this, and they say, well, that's your interpretation. How many of you ever heard that? Yeah, and what they're saying is, don't you understand, everybody has all kinds of crazy interpretations of Scripture. Yes, we understand that. But what they're saying is, because there's so many interpretations, none of them could be right. What we would say is, most of them are wrong. One of them is right. And somebody's got the correct interpretation, and it's not that hard to figure it out if you will interpret Scripture by Scripture. Where God has spoken, He has spoken consistently on all matters of faith. One of the things that's so unique about the Bible, where else in the world is there a collection of 40 different authors speaking three different languages, writing on three different continents over a period of 1,500 years from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, and they all agree. Where else have you ever heard of that happening? That's the unique unity of the Bible. And what made the Bible was made by the eyewitnesses that actually saw these things and heard these things and spoke these things, not from their own interpretation, but holy men speaking from God as they were carried along, moved by the Holy Spirit. And so scripture alone has the authority. The question related to Protestant, Catholic, what sparked the Reformation, it really comes down to this. Who has the authority to define what we believe about God? Is it Scripture alone, or is it Scripture and something else? Let me give you the answer that the Catholic Church gives to that question. To be fair, I'm just going to read to you from the Catholic Catechism. Pretty authoritative source. 
Yeah, here's what the Catholic Catechism says in answer to the question, who has authority to define what we believe? Here it is. The church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Let me read that again. The church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from Holy Scripture alone. Well, if it's not just the Bible, what is it? They identify a second thing. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. The task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted to solely, has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church. That is, to the Pope and the bishops in communion with Him. We believe in Scripture alone. And that is what provoked the protest. The reformers were protesting against man-made doctrines of tradition. The Catholic theologian Michael Shamas says the church is not the product of Scripture. It is rather the other way around. Scripture is the product of the church. And because the Roman Catholic view is the church created the scripture, the church has the right to interpret the scripture. That's not what we believe. We don't believe the church created the scripture. We believe the scripture created the church. We don't believe the church interprets the scripture. We believe the scripture interprets the church. We don't believe the church can change the scripture. We do believe the Scripture can change the church. And so it's a difference in how we view the authority of Scripture. We don't believe there's some hierarchical, high uppity-ups magisterium, and the more syllables you add to the word, the more spiritual it sounds. We don't believe that there's a special group of really spiritual people that meet in a room somewhere that can understand the Bible and interpret the Bible and apply the Bible in a way that the rest of us can't. We don't believe that. We believe that everyone who reads the Word of God and applies the Word of God in its historical grammatical context can understand it, can apply it, can believe it, and can share it with the world. That's what we believe. And we believe that all the authority is exclusively in the written Word of God. What that means personally for me and you is we've got a decision to make. Will I allow the Scripture alone to define what I believe? and to determine how I behave? Or am I going to let my freshman philosophy teacher have a say in that? Am I gonna read what's popular? Am I gonna take a poll? Am I gonna ask my friends? Or am I going to believe what God wrote and what God said? And some of you are facing crises in your life and issues and problems in your life and it comes simply down to this. You don't believe the Bible. You don't read the Bible. You don't obey the Bible. 
And so, yeah, you're messed up. If you want to fix your problem, here's the description and here's the prescription. You might want to obey the scripture. We give the Bible the right to define what we believe and to determine how we behave. Finally, scripture alone is sufficient to lead us into a saving knowledge of God. That's the purpose of the scripture. God wants you to be right with him. And he loves you so much. He recorded how to be right with him in the scripture. So when it comes to this measure of scripture alone or scripture in tradition, how do we decide if the traditions are scriptural? Listen, not all tradition is evil and bad and should be discounted. We have traditions around here. We meet on Sundays. We, uh, we use electricity, all in favor of keeping using electricity in the church. That's traditional. Yeah, we like that. And uh, at the end of the service, we say you are loved. Is that okay? Everybody okay with that? Yeah. Um, so how do you measure tradition? You could actually go to the Bible and ask that question. What does the Bible say about tradition? Let's let the scripture answer that question. Here's a verse from Matthew 15. This is quoting Jesus Christ, an authority on the Bible, I would say. He said, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Speaking to some very traditional Jewish Pharisees at that point. And then he said, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here's another, Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So we contrast human tradition, holy scripture. It goes on, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, learn by us not to go beyond what is written. In other words, the Bible's a finished book. You don't add things to the Bible. He says that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another against, uh, against another. So it's like, how arrogant do you have to be to believe that what you're saying is on par with Scripture? It's like, that you just have to be super arrogant to do that. And then in Galatians 1.8, he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. There is no other source of gospel truth other than the written record of God's word. And then finally, a warning from the last page very last verses of our Bible. With this, God closed the written revelation of Scripture. He said this, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy and of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. In other words, done, complete, that's all you need. Finished. We, we don't need other prophets and other revelations and other dreams and other oracles, we have everything sufficient we need to be right with God. And yet, when you look at other 
religious systems. In, even within the Catholic Church, we see all kinds of man-made ad, added things. We talked about the sale of indulgences for forgiveness of sin. That's still part of Roman Catholic teaching. The idea of the Pope being the head of the church and, and all that goes with that. And what, what the Catholic Church does is they misinterpret Matthew 16 where Jesus ask his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter gives the answer. He says, you are the Christ. And he says, you nailed it. You nailed the gospel. And then Jesus said, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And Roman Catholic church, they, they see that. It's like, well, see, Jesus, he was, he was going to build the church on Peter. He's, he's designating the first pope. Peter's the first pope. And then when Peter dies, there'll be a succeeding Peter and a succeeding pope and all down through the and, and Peter's the head of the church. How would we resolve that? Don't you wish you could just ask Peter? Hey, Peter, did you think that Jesus was like making you pope? You, don't you wish you could ask him that? Don't you wish we had like a, a record of like what Peter said about that? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I seem to remember there's two books in the Bible with Peter's name in them. Peter wrote two books that we have in our Bibles, creatively named 1 Peter and 2 Peter. I asked you to open to 2 Peter earlier in the day. Would you like to see what Peter's commentary was on whether or not he thought he was the first pope? Look there in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's writing to the church, and this is what he says. Look in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Do you remember what Jesus said? You were Peter in the Greek. The word Peter, Petros, means rocky. So he, he named him Rocky, the Rocky One. And so he, he was saying, your name's Peter, like a rock. And then Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And then Peter writes, and do you know what he calls you? He calls you the same thing. You're a living stone. And together, one stone connected to another stone. Pretty soon you put a bunch of stones together. I'm just looking at a bunch of stones here. And pretty soon you can build a wall. Put that wall with another wall. Put a roof on top of it. You got a spiritual house. He's, he's saying, okay, if I'm a stone, you're a stone. We're all stones. Let's all just be rolling stones. We're all, and let's stick together here. And, and, and then he goes on to say this. This is great. He, in verse 5 he says, you yourselves like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Hey, Peter, did you think that you're like the first and great high priest? Like you're the priest, like the big holy grand poobah priest in the church. He's like, well, sure, I'm a priest, but you're a priest too. We're all priests. We don't need a priest anymore because Jesus came and... He sacrificed once for all. We don't even need to go to a temple. We don't need a human priest. We're all priests. This is what we call the priesthood of the believer. We're all priests. And that's what P 
Peter said. Peter, you think you're the Pope? No. You think you're a priest? Yeah, but so are you. And then he goes on and tells us who the rock really is, who is the foundation of the church. He says it. He says, verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What was Christ building his church on? He was building his church upon the foundational confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the chief cornerstone. And Jesus says, yeah, on that truth, I'm building the church. And everybody that believes that, we all get to be living stones. We all get to be priests. We're all together in this. There's not some hierarchical governmental system. We come to Christ through informed by Scripture alone. There's all kinds of other things that it seems like the Catholic Church has added to this, papal infallibility through what is called ex-cathedra. That doctrine was added by Pope Pius IX in 1834. 1834 years after Christ was around, they decided Pope's always right when he speaks from the chair. And so he gets to say things equal to Scripture. The problem so often in Roman Catholic teaching is, is they, they pay way too much attention to Mary. Do you know Mary? You know about Mary, mother of Jesus? They call her the mother of God, the queen of heaven, making her the co-redeemer in salvation. Um, they came up with this idea in 1843. Again, Pope Pius came up with something called the Immaculate Conception. So we, we believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, but then the Pope added to this idea, well, if Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary should have been born of a virgin too. So we, they call that the Immaculate Conception. Then later on, somebody came up with this idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Like she's so important that she, she like she was, Jesus, she was the Virgin Mary, but she was always the Virgin Mary. The, pro the only problem with that is um, Matthew 13 tells us Jesus had brothers and sisters. <laughs> Mary married Joseph, and they had babies. And Jesus had brothers named James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And it goes on and says, and, all, and he had sisters. It's all right there in Scripture. Pope... Um, Pius Twelfth came up with the idea of the assumption of Mary, which means that she never died. She's just one day God just loved her so much, he just took her. That, that doctrine was created in 1950, probably in response to the movie that we just watched. It's like, okay, why do we keep adding and adding and adding? Do we just believe that Scripture is sufficient for everything we need to believe. We can go on and on, praying the rosary and, and the elevation of so many other things. How about purgatory? Purgatory? Like, where'd that come from? Um, it was introduced in the year 593, 593 years after Christ. Pope Gregory the Great 
kind of created this idea. Apparently, he knew some people. They weren't, they weren't really good enough to go to heaven, but they weren't really bad enough to send to hell. So you had just kind of this minor league team that they had to go to for a while and like work themselves out of the A league into the B league into the, that. It's like, that, that would be great. That would be great if anywhere in here it told us anything that resembled that at all. But it doesn't. And so listen, nobody's mad at our Catholic friends but in trying to call us to rally around Scripture as our sole source of authority, I want to make sure that we are informed by the Bible alone. I am a lot more concerned about the unbelief of the people inside this church than any other church in our community because you've had more access to it than anybody and some of you are here yawning your way through it and you're ready to move on to something else and don't realize that God has been speaking through his word this morning and faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How do you respond when you hear the word of God? Has he spoken to your heart today? Do you treasure God's word? Do you read God's word at any other time than when Pastor Trent says, open your Bible? Do you open your Bible any other time? Do you read it? Do you love it? Do you obey it? Do you share it? That'll tell me if you believe it. I want you to stand with me. Let's all stand together. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I've prayed that God would speak today through his word as the Holy Spirit illuminates what he has said. Why don't you just thank him right now? Thank God that you have access to the written word of God in your language, affordable. Thank God for the men and women who paid a price so that you could have God's word. And then would you tell the Lord to give you a hunger for it, a fresh hunger? You might even commit to him, Lord, every day, every day this next week, I'm gonna open my Bible. I'm gonna open my ears to hear what you would say to me through it. Lord, would you speak to me by your spirit, through your word? And God, grant me faith to believe what I read in spite of what's popular, in spite of the pressure I might face. Lord, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for coming to be one of us, to speaking our language, to give us a revelation of who you are, your will and your ways. And I pray, God, that those seeds that are planted in our heart would produce an incredible harvest of fruitfulness as we change in response to what you've said. Lord, we, we want to bring ourselves under the authority of your word. And Lord, anyone that's believing something that's not true, God, would you change us and help us to define our terms based on what you have said. 
And Lord, for some that are just acting completely contrary to your word, would you bring repentance and humility and, and obedience so they could experience the blessing of walking in relation to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.